important. If we're in the middle of a series about learning, a series on prayer and learning about prayer, we should probably look and see what Jesus taught his disciples. Amen. Probably key. So, when the disciples asked Jesus how they should pray, we see his response in Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13. And that is often termed the Lord's Prayer. It's a model prayer for us. And that's where we're going to be sitting today. That's where we're going to be dwelling today. Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13. That's my key scripture. So let's carry on. Let's have a read of it. And then we will dig into it. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full already. But when you pray, go into your most private room. Some translations say, go into the secret place. And closing the door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do do not heap up phrases, multiply words, repeating the same ones over and over as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard by much speaking. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray therefore like this, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And, lead, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven those, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. For if you forgive people their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. Isn't that beautiful? He contextualizes the prayer um, with our heart attitude. I love this context that Jesus uh, gives, within which Jesus gives this model prayer. And that is where we're going to start. That is where we're going to start. So when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he didn't say, this is how you pray straight away. He says, this is how you must come to prayer. That's the first thing he does. So my first title is how to approach prayer. I've got um, the same... Um, contextualization by Jesus. I have it from the message and this is what it says and it says it so beautifully. Listen up. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our father in heaven reveal who you are and then he's and then he continued isn't that beautiful 
Isn't that beautiful? There's an honesty that we need to have when we approach prayer. It's not about what we look like, what we think others, how we think others will view us or how we think God will view us or trying to impress him. It's about being honest and understanding to whom we are praying. And I say that because we need to understand the heart of our Father toward us so that when we approach him, we know that he loves us. We don't have to prove anything. We know that we can come based on what Jesus did and we come. He doesn't hear me more because of the role that I hold in the church. We are all his children. Amen. Amen. I want to read you a piece from, um, written by Ravi Zacharias and it's entitled Worship on Empty and it's an excerpt from this and it illustrates this particular point beautifully. He says, a few years ago, two or three of my colleagues and I were in a country dominated for decades by Marxism. Before we began our meetings, we were invited to a dinner hosted by some common friends, all of whom, who, all of whom were skeptics and, for all practical purposes, atheists. The evening was full of questions posed, by princi posed principally by a notable theoretical physicist in the country. There were also others who represented different elements of power within that society. As the night wore on, we got the feeling that the questions had gone on long enough and that we were possibly going in circles. At that point, I asked if we could have a word of prayer with them, for them, and for the country before we bade them goodbye. There was a silence of consternation and obvious hesitancy, and then one said, of course, and we did just that. We prayed. In this large dining room of historic import to them, with all the memories of secular power plastered within those walls, the prayer brought a sobering silence that we were all in the presence of someone greater than us. When we finished, every eye was moist and nothing was said. They hugged us and thanked us with emotion written all over their faces. The next day when we met them, one of them said to me, we didn't go back to our rooms last night till it was early morning. In fact, I stayed in my lobby, hotel lobby most of the night talking further. Then I went back to my room and gave my life, life to Jesus. This is an atheist. And this is what Ravi says, I firmly believe that it was the prayer that gave them a hint of the taste of what worship is all about. Their hearts had never experienced it. Over the years, I've discovered that praying with people can sometimes do more for them than preaching to them. Prayer draws the heart away from one's own dependence to leaning on the sovereign God. The burden is often lifted instantly. Prayer is only one aspect of worship, but one that is greatly neglected in the face of people who would be shocked to hear what prayer sounds like when the one praying knows the heart of God. Isn't that true? Prayer draws a heart away from one's own dependence to leaning on the sovereign God. The burden is often lifted instantly. Prayer is only one aspect of worship, but one that is greatly neglected in the face of people who would be shocked to hear what prayer sounds like when the one praying knows the heart of God. When we pray, do we know the one to whom we are praying? Or do we pray as a religious activity that makes us feel better? We need to know the one to whom we are praying. So once Jesus lays this background, he says, when you pray, don't make it a theatrical production. Don't do it before people, but connect with your Father in heaven. Then he goes on to say, this then is how you should pray, and he gives us the model prayer. 
Now, when I read the, the, the model prayer to you, the Lord's Prayer, do you think that when Jesus gave it to his disciples, he meant us to sit in bed at night like I used to do when I was in grade five in boarding school? And we all used to have to say the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, etc., etc. Do you think that's what he wanted us to do? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that, and Bill Mounts, who's a, who's a theologian, he also says this, he, we should use the principles of the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for our own prayers. And we don't have to use all of them every time we come to pray, but it's an indication to us and it helps us to know how we ought to pray. Bill Mounts says this, Jesus did not intend this model prayer to be mindlessly repeated as if it were some kind of magical incantation. He never intended the Lord's Prayer to be something we would be saying in church while we're thinking of something else. That happens in church. We sit here, we think of something else. We say the Lord's Prayer, we think of something else. We sing songs of worship while the pastor's praying, we're thinking of something else. God never intended it to be that. That's religion. That's, there's, not, there's no power in that. There's no life in that. The Lord's Prayer is intended to give us the basic structure and basic content of what prayers in general should look, should look like. He says, I think there's quite a bit of room for flexibility as we pray through the Lord's Prayer, but we are supposed to pray like this. Mount suggests that the Lord's Prayer divides naturally into two halves. The first half teaches us to focus our prayers first and foremost on God, while the second half urges us to express our total dependence on God. The first half we're focusing on God, the second half we're expressing our total dependence on God. That should bring about a shift in my prayer focus. When I come to him to pray, I'm not coming just with my shopping list, starting at the top, working my way down. I come and I'm available and I'm focusing on him. I'm available for his purposes. I'm available to hear and I express my dependence on him. Okay, so the first part of that prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, our Father. So this is not a rule, but it's a biblical pattern that we address our prayers to our Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that we can't address Jesus or we can't fellowship with the Holy Spirit, but a pattern is that we address the Father through what Jesus did on the cross. I don't come on my merits. I don't come because I fasted all week. I don't come because I think I'm really spiritual. I come because Jesus died on the cross and made a way for me to come boldly before my Father, before the throne of grace. And I come with the help of the Holy Spirit because He's going to help me to know how to pray. He's going to help me to know what to pray. Amen. Okay. Our Father, our Father. The first part of that prayer I'm wanting us to think about is the term our. Our, our Father, our Father. Romans 8 verse 15 to 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. He's our Father. We belong to a family. We are sons and daughters of the living God. That is awesome. Sons and daughters of the living God. He, we, he's our Father. The Father of Jesus is my Father. The Father of Tracy the father of Paul, the father of Mahle, 
the father of the Christians in Go Christian Church, the father of the Christians in the church down the road that maybe you don't like. He's also their father. The father of the church across town that irritates you, where the pastor you don't like, where you think they're deceived, he's still their father. He's our father. Our father, whether I'm black, whether I'm white, whether I'm yellow, whether I'm short, whether I'm tall, he's our father. That revelation alone should crack tribalism and racism and division and all of those things right on the head. He's our father. Our father. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple and he said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Do you remember we looked at that right in the first um, message on prayer? That word house, the Strong's definition of that word house, it means a dwelling by implication, a family, a home. So Jesus saying, my family will be called a family of prayer. My dwelling will be a dwelling of prayer. My home will be a home of prayer. And we his children, and we all that home. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that awesome? He is my father. What is that word father talking about? Our father. Father in the Greek is pate. I don't know particularly how to pronounce it, but it looks like it's pate. And it means a generator, the founder of a family or tribe, the progenitor of a people, the originator, the transmitter of anything, the authors of a family or society, the author of persons animated by the same spirit. He is father of the stars, the heavenly luminaries, because he is their creator, upholder, ruler. He's the father of rational, intelligent beings, because he's their creator, preserver, guardian, protector. Father of Christians who've been exalted to especially close and intimate relationship with God and revere him as their reconciled and loving father, the father of Jesus, as one God, God whom God has united to himself in the closest bond of love and intimacy and made him acquainted with his purposes, etc., etc. Abba, Father, he's our author, he's our progenitor, he's the one who, whom we get the the Spirit of God, okay? He's the one who authors our lives. When Jesus cried out in Mark, 7, uh, Mark 14 and said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, what, not what I will, but you will. He was crying out to that Father. And it's interesting that the Father is the pater, but he puts Abba there, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, that word Abba there. In the Greek, it basically, in the Greek, it doesn't have a particular meaning. They borrowed it from um, the Hebrew, Chaldee, Abba. And it says, it says, through frequent use in prayer, it gradually acquired the nature of a most sacred proper name. But in the Hebrew, what it meant was principle, chief, okay, patrimony. It was it's a term of respect. It's a term of honor. And some people have said that Abba, because it doesn't have an origin in the Greek, that it was basically Jesus talking like a young child will talk to his father, da, 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 you know, when a child is learning how to speak. But I've been reading in commentaries and they say that, that they don't believe that that was the case. He was talking not Abba, daddy, da, da, like a child, but Abba, father, sir, chief. So there's an element of respect within that. Abba, Father, yes, he's our daddy, but there's an element of respect and honor that we give to him. Abba, Father. 
That's why Jesus says, Abba, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's the chief. He's the one who's in charge. Now, I don't believe God wants us to distance himself, uh, distance ourselves from him. There is that loving relationship, but I think we need to start with Abba, Father, Sir, before we come into the whole Daddy, Abba, Daddy, which is very popular in some Christian circles now, Abba, Daddy. I want to read from um, Malachi. And I'm going to read from a particular translation, which makes it very real. Now, Abba, Father, I think in many Christian circles, we just think he, we use him like a toothbrush. We use that Abba like he's daddy, like he's our plaything, like he doesn't deserve that respect of a chief. But this is what he says in Malachi 1 verse 6 to 14. He says, isn't it true that a son honors his father and a worker his master? So if I'm your father, where's the honor? If I'm your master, where's the respect? God of the angel armies is calling you on the carpet. You priests despise me. You say not so. How do we despise you? By your shoddy, sloppy, defiling worship. You ask, what do you mean defiling? What's defiling about it? When you say the altar of God is not important anymore, worship of God is no longer a priority, that's defiling. How do we view, I've been convicted by this this week, how do we view church? Church is not God's, uh, church is not man's idea. Church is God's idea. How do we view the body of Christ? The body of Christ is not some pastor's idea. It's actually God's idea. Even though it's broken, even though the body of Christ often offends us, even though church can be offensive, it's still God's idea. How do we view it? How do we view Sunday service? How do we view the gathering of the saints? He says, when you say the altar of God is not important anymore, worship of God is no longer a priority, that's defiling. And when you offer worthless animals for sacrifices and worship, in the Old Testament they offered animals in worship. When you offer worthless animals for sacrifices and worship, animals that you're trying to get rid of, the blind, the sick, the crippled, crippled animals, isn't that defiling when we offer second best stuff to God, which we do all the time, I think. Try a trick like that with your banker, with your senator. How far do you think it will get you? God of the angel armies asks you. Get on your knees and pray that I will be gracious to you. You priests have gotten everyone in trouble. With this kind of conduct, conduct do you think I'll pay attention to you? God of the angel armies asks you. Why doesn't one of you just shut the temple doors and lock them? Then none of you can get in and play at religion with a silly empty-headed worship. See, sometimes we think that we can fool everybody else, including God. We may fool everyone else, but we can't fool God. I'm not pleased, God of the angel armies says, he's not pleased, and I don't want any more of this so-called worship. I'm honored all over the world, and there are people who know how to worship me all over the world, who honor me by bringing their best to me. Who honor me by bringing their best to me. They're saying it everywhere. God is greater, this God of the angel armies. All except you. Instead of honoring me, you profane me. You profane me when you say worship is not important. Sunday services are not important. When, what we, what, when you say what we bring to God is of no account. When you say, I'm bored. This doesn't do anything for me. 
We hear that in church. Oh, it's the worship, the songs, they don't do anything for me. Well, as if the worship is for you, honey. It ain't for you, it's actually for God. And you know what? God doesn't hear what we hear. God hears our heart. Yes, we try and make it appealing, you know, to our ears, but God hears our hearts. So when we say worship is not important, Sunday service is not important, cell group is not important, these things that God is doing in and through his body are not important. It doesn't do anything for me. You act so superior, sticking your noses in the air. Act superior to me, God of the angel armies. And when you do offer something to me, it's hand-me-down. It's broken or useless. What type of offering do we offer the Lord? Do we bring him our change? Do you think I'm going to accept it? This is God speaking to you. A curse on the person who makes a big show of doing something great for me. An expensive sacrifice, say. And then at the last minute brings in something puny and worthless. I'm a great king, God of the angel armies, honored far and wide, and I'll not put up with it. You see, God is a God, Abba, who's worthy of our respect. He's our chief. He's the one who should be in charge. When I come to him, when you come to him, we can't come on our terms. We like to come on our terms. We like to come on our terms, but we can't come on our terms. He's our chief. He's the one who's in charge. We come on his terms, okay? Often we come to church with our conditions attached, our conditions and we think we come into church and we just have to listen to the pastor and it's a pastor's idea it's God's idea when Jesus spoke to him in the garden of Gethsemane he said take this cup from me nevertheless not what I will but what you will be done I think that the church would be so much more powerful if Christians if we would all just get this revelation it's not about my will it's not about my comfort it's not about the money that I have in my bank account it's about me doing the will of God it's not about what I look like to everyone else it's about am I fulfilling what God called me to do am I being faithful with that am I being obedient with that if everybody would just do that I think the church would be very powerful so God is our chief he's our boss he's the one who is in charge or should be in charge we come to him on his terms we give him our best and that is what worship should be about amen at the same time as that, he is our loving father. So we need to get that right. We need to get that revelation that he's Abba, Sir. Abba, Sir. Then we can get the revelation of his Abba, Father, my loving father. We have to have both revelations. Have to have both. We have to be able to entertain both. Now, Abba so, so longed for us to be in relationship with him and so longed for us to be intimate with him that it was his idea to give his son and pay this incredible price that we can do that. So he does love us and he does long for us to draw near to because he paid for it and he made the way and it was his idea. So he wants us to draw close to him by, uh, through, through Jesus and boldly enter his throne of grace. Hebrews 4 verse 16, let, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace to find us in our time of need. I love what the Living Application Study Bible commentary says it says prayer is our approach to God and we are to come boldly some Christians approach God meekly with heads hung low afraid to ask him to meet their needs others pray flippantly giving little thought to what they say 
come with reverence because he is your king, but also come with bold assurance because he is your loving father, your friend and counselor. Amen. I want to read, uh, I'm reading a lot to you today. Is that okay? Even if it's not, I'm still going to do it. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, I want to read from a book by Brennan Manning. It's a story that, I love stories, I love real life stories, testimonies of things that people have gone through because we can find tidbits that we relate to in them. Amen. Now, Brennan Manning had, an the late Brennan Manning had an incredible revelation of father and grace and identity. And he has recorded this in his book, The Furious Longing of God. And he says, I will never forget a retreat experience years ago in the Midwest. It was a large gathering, about 7,000 people. An invitation for healing prayer followed each night's service. I would go into a side room and meet with those who felt compelled to come. On one particular night, the line extended well beyond midnight. And after finishing, I went to bed, not even taking my clothes off. I was so tired. Around three in the morning, I heard a rap on the door and a squeaky little voice. Brennan, can I talk to you? I opened the door to find a 78-year-old nun, and she began to cry. Sister, what can I do for you? We found two chairs in the hallway, and her story began. I've never told anyone this in my life. It started when I was five years old. My father would crawl into my bed with no clothes on, and he, she, she describes the situation. Then she says, when I was nine, my father took my virginity. By the time I was 12, I knew every kind of perversion you could read about. Brennan, do you have any idea how dirty I feel? I've lived with so much hatred of my father and hatred of myself that I would only go to communion when my absence would be conspicuous. In the next few minutes, I prayed with her for her healing. Then I asked her if she would find a quiet place every morning for the next 30 days, sit down in a chair, close her eyes, upturn her palms, and pray this one phrase over and over, Abba, I belong to you. It's a prayer of seven syllables, the number that corresponds perfectly to the rhythm of our breathing. As you inhale, Abba, as you ex exhale, I belong to you. She agreed. One of the most moving and poetic follow-up letters I've ever received came from this sister. In it, she describes the inner healing of her heart, a complete forgiveness of her father, and an inner peace she'd never known in her 78 years. She concluded her letter with these words. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name in, in religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, I'm daddy's little girl. I'm daddy's little girl. Such a story, such a testimony of the healing power of someone getting a revelation and meditating on her Abba father and who he really is. Who he really is. So we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we've looked at our Father, our Father. The next portion is, who is in heaven? Have you ever wondered why Jesus put that in the prayer, who is in heaven? I mean, he could have just said, our Father, right? Our Father, our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 16 says, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven. Where's your Father? I 
think he's in heaven, right? We could carry on. I've got so many scriptures here. So I guess that Jesus wanted us to know and recognize that our Father is in heaven. Where's Jesus? Yes, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Ephesians 1 verse 19 to 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore we, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us and run endurance with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God so where is Jesus is he living in my heart very silent <laughs> Jesus is in heaven Jesus is in heaven and it was so interesting my son asked us a question a couple of years ago because you know we pray we pray and we say invite Jesus into your heart Jesus is living in your heart and he is by his spirit you know and I remember one of my sons said to me but mom how can Jesus live in my heart he's so big how can he fit in my heart <laughs> which is a valid question okay but Jesus is in heaven Okay, he's in heaven and Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is in heaven with his Father making intercession for us. Okay, now why did Jesus go away? John 16 tells us, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go, do not go away, the helper who's the Holy Spirit will not come to you. So Jesus said it was better that he went away because when he went away, he could send the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who's on earth with us right now. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will help us to pray. John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John 14, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another Helper, the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. So the Father, our Father is in? Jesus is in? heaven yes the Holy Spirit is on earth with us now the Holy Spirit is key when it comes to prayer if we're looking at the our father we have to recognize that our father is in heaven but the Holy Spirit is with us Romans 8 verse 26 to 27 says likewise the Spirit helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought we don't always know what to pray for hey I don't know about you but I don't Okay, it says the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So, the Holy Spirit is really key in this whole prayer thing. Without the Holy Spirit, we won't always know how to pray and we won't always pray according to the will of God. Now, I heard that in one of the groups, one of the people were asking, Well, how much should we pray? When do we know that we've arrived in our prayer lives? When when do we when do I pray enough how many of you ever thought thought that how much prayer is enough you know and I don't really like that question because I think sometimes it comes from a religious sort of standing where we want marks and standards where we know once we've reached that mark we give ourselves a little tick okay but if I look in scripture it says 1 Thessalonians 5 16 to 18 says rejoice always pray without ceasing rejoice always pray two hours a day does it say that? Rejoice always pray three hours in the morning and two hours in the middle of the night. Does it say that? 
No. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't pray without ceasing unless I have the Holy Spirit and I have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and I can speak in other tongues. Amen. The Holy Spirit helps us. We pray. It's a relationship. It's not about ticks. It's a relationship with God. If I'm to pray without ceasing, I need the Holy Spirit. If I'm to pray the will of God, I need the Holy Spirit. So our Father who is in heaven, our Father is in heaven, Jesus is in heaven, the Holy Spirit is with us. He helps us to pray in accordance with the will of God. Okay. Hallowed be your name. That's the next point in Jesus' prayer. Hey, Hallowed be your name. Pray involves worship. You know, in the church, we've got this divide, and we like, to, we like to divide everything and put everything in boxes. But God, I don't, God doesn't always do that. He doesn't always do that. His house shall be called a house of prayer. That prayer actually includes music and song and prayers set to, set to music and sung and worship. It includes everything. We can't, like, have neat little boxes. Prayer, praise, worship, work. Okay, it doesn't work. Okay, it all fits together. Prayer involves worship. Prayer involves worship. Prayer should be God-centered before it is man-centered. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's about Him. My mind is on Him. My heart is fixed on Him. It's about Him before it's about me. Okay, that is what Jesus, that's not my thoughts. Those are Jesus' thoughts. The first four lines of the model prayer focus on God our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Can you see it's focusing on him? It's not focusing on me and my world and my kingdom and my calling and my bank account and my, me, my, my destiny. You see it's focused on him, your will be done, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Okay, interesting, very interesting. Our prayer times should focus on worship and thanksgiving. In worship, we praise God for who he is. In thanksgiving, we honor him for what he has done. Now, I just want to clarify this worship because sometimes when you say worship in church, people automatically think of a band and instruments and singing. Okay, now that is part of worship. That is one expression of worship. But if I look at Romans 12, it's a very small expression of worship because how many of you, if I, if I had to say to you, how many of you can sing really nicely or play an instrument? Can you put up your hand? Okay, just be, just be honest if you think you can. How many of you can sing, okay, and hold a tune? Okay, imagine if worship was all about singing. I mean, none of you are putting up your hands. But imagine if worship was only about singing and playing an instrument. Wouldn't it be quite sad? It means that everybody in this church doesn't think that they're a worshiper. Okay, but Romans 12 says, Therefore I appeal to you and beg of you in view of God's mercies to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties, eyes, ears, mouth, hands, feet, everything, mind, present all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Which is your reasonable act of worship. So when this becomes our definition of worship, how many of you can fall into that category? Can I see with, can you raise your hands? Everybody should have their hands raised, okay? Everybody should have, everybody is called to this type of worship. Now, this type of worship, slap bang in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, I love it. Do you know why? Because it's not about 
five minutes here, one minute there, looking spiritual. It's about a lifestyle. It's about what Jesus was saying when he said, when you pray, don't pray like this. Don't let it be an outward show for five minutes. It must be a lifestyle. It must be a lifestyle because God can see. God can see straight through. He knows where you were last night. He knows what you did this morning. Who are we trying to fool, okay? It must be a lifestyle. I present my whole body, all my faculties, what I think about, what I watch on TV, where, where my feet lead me, everything. What I say to my husband, everything is an act of worship. Everything is an act of worship, okay? It's not a theatrical production. Matthew 22, verse 36 to 38. Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. All your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. I think this is what under, underpins worship. This must be our heart for worship. Genesis 22, if you look at the story of Abraham in Genesis 22, that is the first time that worship is mentioned in the Bible. And I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Whenever something is mentioned the first time in the Bible, it's the principle of first mention. It's a type. The first time worship is mentioned in the Bible is in the story of Abraham. And as you all know, Abraham did not have an heir. He did not have a son. Okay? And God promised him that his descendants would be as, as many as the stars in the sky. And then it took years and years and years and nothing happened. Okay. Finally, God gives him his promise and gives him one son. And when that son is a certain age, um, God says to him, right, Abram, I want you to take your son to Mount Moriah and offer him as a living sacrifice. I mean, how would you feel? It's like all your hope of the promise of God, which took years and years and years to come to pass. God is saying, lay that thing down and kill it. Okay? But Abraham says, you know what he says? He says, you can read it in Genesis 22. He says to his servants, you stay here. The boy and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back. So there was an element of faith. There was an element of faith. See, sometimes worship, when God looks at us, worship is, worship is about us bringing before God those things that we hold so close to our heart and trusting God with them, saying, Lord, even if you take it away, I know by faith it'll come back because I know my Father, my Abba Father. I know the goodness of your heart. Worship is being able to give those things and not withhold, even if it's the seed of the promise that God has promised us. Worship involves obedience. Abraham was obedient. Even when no one was watching, especially when no one was watching, Abraham said to his servants, you stay here, the boy and I will go yonder and worship. God looks at our worship when no one is watching. Who are you when no one is watching? Okay? Worship inevitably involves sacrifice. You might think it looks like fun. Oops. You might think it looks like fun, and it is fun. But it's sacrifice. Everyone who comes here on a Sunday looks nice. But it's sacrifice. We are at Hopper 7 every Sunday. Okay? Sometimes we'd rather be doing something else. But we come Sunday in, Sunday out. Maybe the people who run around and serve and the, the ushers maybe think, wow, it looks nice. Yes, it looks nice. And we're doing it for God. But it's sacrifice. Whatever your worship is, maybe the guys in Pretoria East going onto the streets. It's sacrifice. 
They could be doing other things with their Saturday. It's sacrifice, but it's worship. Amen. What is God asking you to worship Him with in your life? Maybe you don't want to come and play piano. Maybe you, God isn't calling you to go with Pretoria East to go and help them on the streets. But what is God asking you to bring before Him today? Worship. It involves faith. And true worship is often proved when no one else is watching. When God called Abraham to offer Isaac, no one else was watching. But God was watching. Okay, so worship has many expressions and singing is one of them. And in our prayer lives, we to include singing and thanksgiving in it, but it must come as a fruit of a life of worship, of a life of obedience. Otherwise, it's a theatrical production. Amen. I love the story in 1 Samuel 15 where God sends Saul to go and kill all the Amalekites, everyone, including the king, not to take anything, kill everything, all their livestock, everything. And um, Samuel, the Lord speaks to Samuel, and Samuel knows that Saul didn't fulfill everything that the Lord, he fulfilled some of it. Sometimes we do that, hey. The Lord tells us to do something and we fulfill three quarters. But I did obey you, Lord. I just... Didn't do all of it. So this is the case, is what happened with Saul here. Saul insisted to Samuel, I obeyed the Lord. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. But the Lord had told him to destroy everyone. Then my troops brought the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord. So they were supposed to kill off everything. But he says, no, but my troops, he's blaming them. My troops brought the best for sacrifice. And Samuel says, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad worship of idols. So because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Very serious. Our worship must come from a life of obedience. When I come to pray and I think and I reflect on my life and I offer worship to him, I must also be cognizant of the fact, am I actually obeying what he's asked me to do? Am I walking in obedience to God? Is my life worship? Is my life incense? Is this time now where I'm declaring his praise? Is it just the cherry on the top? Because that's what it's meant to be. So we've looked at our Father, we've looked at who art in heaven, we've looked at hallowed be your name and worship and what worship really is. And now I want us to look at your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, one of the reasons why we feel free to say, visit other churches, and why we feel free when people, when it really is their time to move on, to hold people like this and say, go, is because we're not building our kingdom. This church is not building our kingdom. We're not building a go church kingdom. We're building our king's kingdom. It's his kingdom. We have to be about the business of the king. We're not competing with the church down the road. We're all on the same side. And I wish more churches had that, had that sort of idea. When we criticize and compare and are negative about other churches, that's his church too. We're building his kingdom. We need to be about his kingdom. We, we need to want to see his kingdom to come on earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So prayer is not a one-way speech. It's finding out what God's will is. What is God's will for you in your workplace? Do you know? Are you praying it into being? What is your role where God has you in your family, in your relationships? God has a will. God wants you to bring his kingdom in the place wherever you find yourself. Do you know what it is? Are you praying into it? Are you finding out what his will is? You know, there are various domains in society, and sometimes we'll do, at some point we'll do a series on this, but there's agriculture, there's banking, there's business, there's education, there's family, there's church. There's also of different domains in society and God has a blueprint and a pattern for all of these domains it's in the Bible do we know what his heart is for arts and, and media do we know what the purpose is for that do we know the, uh, God's heart towards sports and recreation what domain are you called to and do you understand what God's blueprint is what aspect of, his, of himself is he wanting to reveal through these various domains what, how does he want his kingdom to manifest and look like what is your role and are you praying it into being health, science and technology what is his will for these why is it there because God is a God of all of life do we understand what his will is are we wanting to bring his kingdom wherever we find ourselves or have we tried to keep God within the four walls of the church within our own households and families within our safe relationships where everyone's a Christian because his kingdom coming must break out of that we have to break out of the four walls of the church we have to bring his kingdom Monday to Saturday when we're not within the four walls of the church when we're not in our safe little churchy churchy huddles amen his kingdom he wants his kingdom to come wherever you are we have to look at it like this wherever I am God has put me here if I'm here even if I don't like it there's a purpose I'm here for a reason what is his will am I praying it into being do I know what it is am I fulfilling his kingdom mandate for me right now Sometimes Christians express this whole thing, your kingdom come, your will be done. Sometimes as Christians, we sit quiet because we're wanting to hear a booming voice from heaven. Okay, news flash. God often, most often, doesn't speak to us with booming voices from heaven. Most of the time he does, but most of the time he doesn't. And most of the time, it's not particularly helpful to sit around in silence. How many of you find, will know what happens when you sit in silence and pray and you're not meditating on anything? What happens? You start thinking of a hundred other things. I don't know, are you like me? Your mind wonders, okay? It's not helpful. It's helpful to fix it, to focus it on God's word, on his plans, on, on meditate on something, or be praying and the Holy Spirit will prompt us while we're talking to him. And we discern his will, we discern his desires as we're talking, as we're praying, okay? But this portion of the prayer indicates to me that I must avail myself to be able to pray and to intercede for his will. How many of us actually do that, honestly, in our own prayer times? We have time where we say, Lord, this time is your time. Would you like me to pray? What would you like me to pray for? You know, I'm sure that if we listened more, he would ask us more. I remember he woke me up one night 
and I think I need to be more sensitive because this hasn't happened since then. But he woke me up one night and the Holy Spirit, clear as a bell, I saw a picture of a girl. She was pregnant. She was in a toilet. She was t taking drugs. She wanted to commit suicide because she was very young and she was pregnant. I saw her in the toilet. The door was closed and the Holy Spirit said to me, I just saw that straight away. I knew all those d details and he said, pray. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed until I felt the burden lift. And then in the morning I said, Holy Spirit. And he was kind of like, I had a peace, like it was okay with her, like she was in hospital. But I'm sure that if many of us would just be sensitive and still ourselves and say, Lord, what is on your heart? He would get us to pray more because there are more people like that. There are more people that, that are struggling with depression, even in our church, depression, heaviness, people who maybe we pass here in the car park and we don't even know what's happening in their lives. But if we would just pause and make ourselves available, whether it's sleep, which I love, okay, whether it's sleep and being willing to just press pause on our sleep for a little bit or in our prayer time saying okay Holy Spirit we're meditating is there someone you want me to pray for you know what can I do availing ourselves because this speaks to me of that your kingdom come your will be done pausing and letting the Holy Spirit speak to us so that is focusing on God. So those lines of the prayer focus on God. The next, give us this day. I'm going to try and finish today. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Although prayer for needs is not the most prominent part of the model prayer, the Bible does command us to present our requests to God. In Philippians it says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. I love that scripture. So we can bring our requests before God. It's not the main focus of our prayer. It's not the first thing that we do when we come to pray. But it is there. That's encouraging. How many of you, if you had a child who constantly came and the only time they came to you was when they wanted to ask you for something, after a while it gets a bit, you know, or a spouse or a friend, the only time they spoke to you was when they wanted something, how would you feel? The relationship would go so deep, hey? And so it is with our Father in heaven. If the only time we ever speak to him is when we want something from him or about something that we want, I think our relationship gets stuck at a certain level. How about we ask him too, and it's reciprocal. I ask him, and I can also uh, ask him what's on his heart, and I can also ask him for stuff that's on my heart. Okay, When we place relationship with him first, he begins to give us the desires of his heart. And when we pray more and more in accordance with the desires on his heart for us, according to his will, he answers our prayers. Amen. Okay, he delights in answering these requests. Psalm 37, I love the scripture, says, trust, lean on, rely on, and be confident in the Lord, and do good, and you will dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness, and you shall be fed. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Roll and repose each care of your load on him. Trust and lean and rely on him and he will bring it to pass. He will make your uprightness and right standing with God go forth as the light. Be still and rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Beautiful disposition to have in prayer. Trust, roll, repose, asking him for the things, letting him know the things that are on your heart. John 14 says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. 
representing all that I am so that the Father may be glorified and extolled through the Son. I will grant and do whatever you ask in my name. So he grants what we ask in accordance with his will for his glory. That's a key, that's a secret in terms of prayer and getting our prayers answered. Okay, let's see. I've got, I think I've got two more. I'm going to go quickly and finish. So we finish this up this week. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. There's some people, and I've spoken to a lady, and she believes that we don't have to confess our sins, and we don't have to talk about our sins because we're already forgiven. Well, 1 John 1, 8-9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our all unrighteousness. We do confess our sins. We confess our sins to him. We confess our sins to one another, and God cleanses us and forgives us. A notable feature of the model prayer that Jesus gives us is how much emphasis he places on sin and forgiveness. It's worth noting. It's a whole line that he puts there. It must be important. Okay? It must be important. Now, Jesus teaches later on in, in Matthew 6, if you forgive those who sin against you, your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. That is a scary, scary thought. Sometimes we skim over it. It's not important. It's not what we want to read. No. Pause. If I don't forgive Joe Bloggs, who drove in front of me this morning and really irritated me, my father will not forgive me. If I don't forgive whoever for raising their voice at me, my father will not forgive me. Now, what they did may be wrong, but I still have to forgive them because I still do wrong things and I still need God's forgiveness. Amen. So when we come to prayer, it's really important that we say, Lord, is there unforgiveness is there bitterness? Is there offense? Is there something that I need to forgive and release? Because I need grace. I need to release, uh, grace to be released to me. We need to be taking our hearts before God and making sure we're not judging others and holding grudges. Matthew 7 says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we come to pray, let's clear, let's make sure there's no judgment in our hearts towards other people. Amen. Okay? And the reality here, I've got a little note, the reality is that we judge others, we judge ourselves by our intentions. But we judge other people by what they do, by their actions, don't we? So if we didn't mean to do that, but we did it, we think it's okay. But if someone else did it, we've judged them. We've put them in jail in our hearts straight away. Regardless, we're not interested in what they meant, okay? What they intended to do. We need to extend grace. Extend grace. So that was forgive us our sins. I'm going quickly. We forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. Really important to do that in prayer. And I love the last bit. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Jesus saying, praying there for strength. Pray for yourself for strength. Praying. Pray that God helps you not to yield to temptation. Remember that James 1 verse 13 to 15 says, Remember when you're being tempted not to say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone. 
So God doesn't tempt us, okay? James says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So it's not that we're saying, God, please don't tempt me. No, God doesn't tempt. We're saying, Lord, help me. That's why I like this translation. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And Jesus puts that there in the model prayer. Now, the importance, here again, I see the importance of walking in relationship with him. Because when I'm in my time of prayer, and I've got my Bible out, and no children are around me, no husband is around me, no one else is around me, is that the time that I'm likely to be tempted to sin, to get angry, to blow it? No. That's not, when I walk out of my prayer closet and I'm now driving or the children are now all around me or I'm now at work or I'm now in the middle of a heated conflict with someone, that's when it's the temptation is going to come. Amen. So we have to walk and be constantly walking out our prayer life, constantly cognizant of the fact that he is with me and my prayer can't be contained in this small little portion of my day called a quiet time. My prayer is just a relationship. It's a two-way relationship that I walk out throughout the day. All day, I'm aware of his presence. I'm with him. I'm praying. I'm Lord. I'm worshiping him. I was riding the other day down Bota. We went for a long cycle and I was just declaring praise. I was declaring praise and thanksgiving so powerful as I was riding down the road, down the hill, fast. <laughs> Downhill, you can go fast, okay. That's what it should be like, cognizant, always aware of the presence of God. Hallowed be your name. In my, on my cycle, when I'm driving to school, praying for the kids, presenting my requests to God, okay? When I'm in my point of conflict, aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit, Lord, please set a God at my mouth. Set a God at my mouth. Help me not to say something that I'll regret. 